Hey y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Greetings everyone. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was March 14, 1889. Susan LaFleche graduated as valedictorian from medical school, and she became the first Native American woman to earn a medical degree in the United States. Susan was born in 1865 in what is now Nebraska. Her father was Joseph LaFleche, also known as Iron Eye, and her mother was Mary Gale, also known as One Woman. Susan had a mixed heritage of indigenous peoples, but her family was enrolled as Omaha, a Midwestern Native American tribe. When Susan was born, they lived on a reservation in modern-day northeastern Nebraska. And on the reservation, there were plenty of instances that exposed the need for better health care and Susan's desire to become a doctor. When she was eight, she tended to a dying woman who had called for an agency doctor who didn't show up and her father had to have a leg amputated after an injury went untreated. But Susan, at first, would go on to become a teacher. She attended the Elizabeth Institute for Young Ladies in New Jersey, and then she returned to the reservation to teach at the Presbyterian Mission School. But in 1883, Alice Cunningham Fletcher, an ethnologist who was close to Susan's brother Francis, got sick. Susan helped take care of her, and Fletcher encouraged her to study medicine. So Susan began attending the Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute in 1884. The school had began accepting indigenous students with a goal of assimilating them into white culture, but regardless, Susan graduated second in her class in 1886. Martha Waldron, the resident physician at Hampton Institute, had also encouraged Susan to study medicine. She was accepted to the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, but she couldn't attend because there was no more money in the school's scholarship fund by then, and she couldn't afford to pay tuition out of pocket. But it turned out that she had a lot of people on her side. The Connecticut Indian Association, which advocated for the rights of Native people and favored assimilation, raised funds from its members for Susan's education, and it asked for donations through the Hartford Courant. In one letter Susan herself wrote appealing for donations, she said, I feel that as a physician, I can do a great deal more than as a mere teacher, for the home is the foundation of all things for the Indians, and my work, I hope, will be chiefly in the homes of my people. The U.S. Office of Indian Affairs also gave Susan money, $167 a year. That grant made her the first student to get federal aid for college. So now that she had the funds to do so, she started medical school in October 1886. After she graduated on March 14, 1889, Susan finished an internship she'd had in Philadelphia, then returned home to her reservation to be a doctor. Back on the reservation, Dr. LaFleche worked competently and compassionately, and she soon gained the trust of her patients. In 1890, at age 24, she became the official Bureau of Indian Affairs physician. She treated illnesses and counseled people on their health, but she also assisted people who didn't know English and campaigned for temperance. In 1894, 
she married Henry Picot, who was a member of the Yankton Western Dakota people. From there, Dr. Picot started a medical office in her home, became a field matron, and began advocating for public health and Native American rights. And in 1913, she opened a hospital in Walt Hill, Nebraska, with money she had raised herself. But pain she'd been having for years grew worse, and operations she had uncovered a poor prognosis. She died in 1915 of what they believed at the time to be bone cancer. But she'd managed to make a difference across many fields, leaving her mark on education, medicine, public health, and indigenous rights. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about Pakat, you can listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Dr. Susan LaFleche Pakat. You can learn more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. We'll be back with more history tomorrow. Hello, everybody. I'm Eves, and you're tuned into This Day in History class, a show where we travel back in time one day at a time. The day was March 14, 1900. U.S. President William McKinley signed the Gold Standard Act, which made gold the sole standard for redeeming paper money. The Gold Reserve Act of 1934 transferred gold and gold certificates from the Federal Reserve Bank to the U.S. Treasury. Gold and silver have long been monetary standards around the world. The Coinage Act of 1792 made the U.S. silver dollar the country's standard unit of money, pinning its value to the value of the Spanish silver dollar. It established a U.S. mint, or a place where coins are made, and it regulated the coins of the U.S., Coins were minted from gold, silver, and copper. The act also established a decimal system for U.S. currency. It allowed people to have gold or silver bullion coined at the mint or exchanged for the equivalent value of coin for free. From 1861 to 1862, during the American Civil War, the U.S. issued demand notes, a type of paper money. But in 1862, the United States note, also known as the legal tender note, replaced demand notes. They were issued as fiat money, or money that was not convertible into coin or specie of equivalent value. That meant that the money was backed only by the government's promise to redeem them. But the National Banking Acts of 1863 and 1864 established a national bank system and a national currency backed by government securities held by other banks. They also established the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. The Coinage Act of 1873 demonetized silver, effectively ending bimetallism in the U.S. and putting the country on the gold standard. That meant that a fixed price of gold was used to determine the value of currency. Throughout the late 1800s, people frequently raised the issue of returning to a bimetallic monetary standard. But on March 14, 1900, the Gold Standard Act went into effect. The Gold Standard Act set the value of gold at $20.67 per troy ounce, 
Troy weight is a system used mostly for precious metals and gems that is based on a pound of 12 ounces. The act also valued the dollar at 25.8 grains of gold. But as the Great Depression ramped up in the early 1930s, the U.S. put measures in place to combat its effects. In April of 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 6102. The order forbade, quote, the hoarding of gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates within the continental United States. All people, businesses, and banks had to deliver their gold and gold certificates to the Federal Reserve in exchange for $20.67. The next year, the Gold Reserve Act was passed. Federal Reserve banks were ordered to hand their supply of gold over to the U.S. Treasury. Roosevelt changed the value of gold from $20.67 per troy ounce to $35 per troy ounce, which devalued the U.S. dollar. At this point, gold was no longer a currency in the U.S. It was now a commodity. Now, the U.S. uses Federal Reserve notes as banknotes. Though some people have suggested a return to the gold standard, economists suggest that this would hurt the country's economy. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Have a hard time staying present as you mindlessly scroll through social media? Lucky for you, we're stuck in the past. At T-D-I-H-C podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or if you want to get a little more fancy, you can send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening and have a fantastic 24 hours until we see you again. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.